0: beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each in his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Things are a little bit uh, different than a Sunday morning, and so uh, in order to accommodate some of our kids who might be a little squirmy, we're actually going to hear the sermon in two parts. So we'll get a little installment here and then a little installment a little bit later. But if you're joining us this morning, uh, we're right in the middle of our Very Reformed Christmas series, and uh, 500 years ago, this past October 31st, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral in Germany, protesting the sale of indulgences by the Pope. And so we've been celebrating the Reformation this Advent season. And I want us to, today, since it's Christmas Eve, I want to take us back to Reformation Eve, if you will. The evening of October 30th, 1517, because something very significant happened that night. And uh, since it is Christmas Eve, I thought we would hear about Reformation Eve to the tune of uh, Twas the Night Before Christmas. Twas the night before the Reformation, when all through the church, there'd be quite a stirring on October 31st. The thesis would be hung on the cathedral with care. Ninety-five concerns of Martin Luther soon would be there. But Frederick was nestled all snug in his bed, while visions of a goose feather danced in his head, and he dreamed in his sleep of a monk with a quill, who just scribbled out words on a door, if you will, when over in Rome there arose such a clatter. Frederick looked in his dream to see what was the matter. And the end of the pen had flown like a flash, longer and longer. Across Europe it stretched till the end of the quill was tickling Rome. And knocked the Pope's hat from off of his dome. When Frederick's wondering eyes did inquire, then the monk responded and said, My dear sire, this hundred-year-old feather, so long and quick, From a bohemian goose for a pen I did pick. You see, on the Reformation Eve, Frederick the Wise had this strange dream of a monk writing on the door of the cathedral in his town with a quill which was a 100-year-old feather of a goose. This morning we're going to learn about that Bohemian goose. His name is John Huss. John Huss, who died in fourteen fifteen, about one hundred years before Martin Luther and the official start of the Protestant Reformation. You see, John was born in a Bohemian town called Husinec, which means Goose Town. And in his 20s, he shortened his last name from Husenek to just Hus, which means goose. Now, the goose came from a very poor family in Bohemia, which is in modern day Czech Republic. And as he grew up, he realized that the best way for upward mobility, uh, the best way for an easier life and a guaranteed pay and a, a more luxurious lifestyle was to become a priest because everyone knows priests and pastors live very luxurious lives. They at least did in those days. During his studies to become a wealthy pastor, he came into contact with the writings of a man named John Wycliffe. An Englishman who had recently been burned by the church for teaching that the scriptures alone should exercise final authority over the church. Well, John Huss's whole perspective changed as he began to trust in scriptures alone over what the church had to say or anyone else. And he says he was simply desiring to hold, believe and assert whatever is contained in the scriptures as long as I have breath in me. And so after he attained his degrees, he was appointed the people's priest in Prague. In Bethlehem Chapel, a cathedral that sat 3,000 people. And he was actually a very popular preacher. And I'll I'll tell you why. Because he was appointed to preach not in Latin, but in the language of the people, in Czech. So you could understand The people would appreciate his preaching because they understood what he was saying. And he was preaching from the scriptures. Now in those days, the Catholic Church had a big problem, which was this. They had three popes going all at once. And here's what happened. You see, the church, when the pope dies, they get a council of cardinals together and it's their job to elect a new pope. Well, as they were about to elect a new pope, some Italians, an Italian mob, burst into the room, threatened to off their heads if they didn't elect an Italian pope. Sounds about right. So they elect an Italian pope. But then some of them abscond back to France and say, well, that wasn't, that was under duress. So we're going to elect a new pope. Well, now we've got two popes. And both of them are excommunicating each other and calling the other one the Antichrist, kicking each other out of the church. And nobody really liked either of these popes anyways, so they have a third council where they decide, well, we'll just depose the other two popes and we'll elect a third pope. Well, that didn't really work. The other two popes didn't step down. So now we have three popes. What does this have to do with John Huss? Well, this third pope, being the politician that he was, John Twenty-Third, decided to declare war on the other two popes. And in order to fund this war, he started selling indulgences, full forgiveness of sins, to the people in cities like Prague. Well, John Huss didn't like this very much. Caring for the souls of the poor and his flock, he insists no one can sell the forgiveness of sins. Only Christ Jesus can forgive sins. And Pope John says, I unfriend you, you're out of the church. (laughs) And John Huss says, well, you can't kick me out of the church because Jesus Christ alone is the king of the church. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we have come together to celebrate this Christmas in the passage of Luke chapter 2. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Two simple truths that we're going to see this morning. One in the first half and one in the second half of the sermon. And they are this, number one, Christ alone is our human king. And secondly, Christ alone is our heavenly Savior. So let's look again at Luke chapter two, in verse one. He starts the Christmas narrative in a very odd place. I see our hornet is back this morning. <laughs> this thing has plagued us for several several weeks. Uh, Luke starts his Christmas story where most of us probably don't begin our Christmas festivities with a government census. Look at verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So Caesar Augustus decides, I want to know the names and the locations of every single person who owes me money. I want to know the names of all the people in the whole inhabited world of whom I am their sovereign king. I want all their names down on paper so that I can make sure that they're all paying me what they owe me. And then Luke continues this Christmas story with a bunch of details. Details about who was the governor at that time. Details about how people got registered for this census. Details about a man named Joseph and his lineage and about the name of his wife, and about his travels, and from what city he came, and what region, and into what region he went, and into what city he went to go stay. And then about his engaged wife, and all the details of her pregnancy, and then even down to the place of where her baby was laid. Details. If you were writing a Christmas story, and you wanted to inspire Joy and excitement and warm fuzzies in a holiday season. Is a government census where you would start things? An exercise of government bureaucracy. Yes, that is what gets my heart going. Well then what is Luke doing here with all of these carefully ordered details in this story? Well, he's showing us that Jesus Christ really and truly came. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not hearsay. These are real facts about a real human being who was really documented in history, born to real parents, In a real city, laid in a real manger, at a real point in history. And if we had the government records from the days of Caesar Augustus, you could go in and pull the Chronicles off the shelf and turn to that page in Bethlehem and you would find listed under Joseph and his betrothed wife Mary, Dependents 1, Jesus, age 0. would be there. And I wouldn't be surprised if Luke himself, when he was in Rome, did that very thing. You see, when we say that Christ alone is our human king, we're emphasizing the truth that Jesus was fully human. In every way we conceive of. He was a real person who could be written down and and his name bubbled in on a government census form. He was a real baby that had to be born, a real infant that was swaddled just like every single one of us had swaddled our own children and grandchildren, who was really laid in a manger. You know, no other birth in all of Scripture is... Chronicle with such detail as this one in Luke chapter 2 Luke is saying to us this morning friends Jesus really has come he really has as a real human baby in a real place in real time You know, this Christmas, I'm sure there are many things in our lives that feel very real to us. Your circumstances, whatever may be going on in your life, very real. Your sorrows, maybe you've lost a loved one or something really hard has happened recently and that feels very real. Maybe you feel guilty. Your shame, your hopelessness feels very real. Or maybe what's going on at work, your job, that is very concrete, that is real. Or maybe you're thinking back at the messy house you left behind. I know we did. Very real. Or kids, maybe you're thinking about the toys that are waiting for you under under the Christmas tree. Very real to our kids this morning. It all feels very real, but this Christmas Eve, the thing that Matthew wants us to know and believe is more real than anything else in all of this world is that Jesus Christ is our human King. He is real. And He has come. He's qualified. Do you notice that Luke goes to great lengths to show us his resume, his qualifications, his pedigree? Look at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because, if you didn't catch it the first time I said it, he was of the house and lineage of David. God had promised King David over a thousand years before this, that he was going to have a son who would one day sit on his throne forever. And then an angel in Luke chapter 1 comes and reaffirms this to Mary. And then he says, look, born to David, born in the city of David, Bethlehem, just like David. Friends, we live in a world where everyone wants to think of themselves as Caesar Augustus. I run my life. I'm the main character of my story. I'm in control. I should be king. But this Christmas Luke shows us we need to bow down and worship the only one who is qualified to be king. And that's Jesus Christ. But look at what kind of king we are called to honor and obey. Look at verse seven once again. Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. What a contrast. Verse 1, we have Caesar Augustus, in all of his pomp, wants to know exactly how many people do I rule. And he's taking a record of all of his subjects so that he can build himself up and all of his power and esteem I uh, preside over the entire inhabited world. And then in verse 7, we have the true king laid in the manger. In fact, the angels point out that this is the sign that he is the king. That he's wrapped in swaddling cloth and laying in a manger. In the days of John Huss, the Pope liked to pretend that he was some sort of Caesar. They would ride around on these white horses and these royal robes with jewels. And they had these huge crowns that they would wear Huss had this thought that, you know, it's kind of strange that the guy who's claiming to be the head of the church is parading around more like Caesar than like the humble king that we claim to follow. Because Luke tells us the sign that Jesus is the king is his humility. We praise God that Christ alone is our human king because he was born in humility in order that he may die humbly for us. The king came to lay down his life for his subjects, for his people. Why did he do it? John Huss writes, so that there might be one city under one king, and one province under one emperor, happy, praising God in its never-ending peace and salvation and blessing without end. That's why this humble human king has come. This Christmas we search, Luke says, search the whole world over. You can look in past, present, and future, and you will only find one man in all of history who is qualified to serve as king. And it's not Caesar Augustus, it's not the Pope, it's not me, and it's not you. Christ alone is the human King. So let us behold Him in all of His glorious humility. Born in Bethlehem, the city of David, the city of shepherds laid in a manger. John Huss writes, He it is who feeds His sheep by His word and example, and by the food of His body, He is the bishop holding supreme guardianship over his flock. Christ alone is our human king. Let's pray together. For Jesus, we pray that we would treasure you in your humility, in your quality, as the only one who can rightly sit on the throne and lead us and give us peace. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. We're going to give thanks for what we have heard. We're going to sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem, number 86. And then we'll have our ushers come forward and they are going to receive our offering as we lay our gifts before our King. Let's stand together and sing number 86, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Well, our second point this morning comes from the second half of the Christmas story in Luke chapter 6. Because Luke chapter 2 is not only about how Christ alone is our human king, but secondly we see Christ alone is our heavenly Savior. So let's listen as the story continues in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. But the angel said to them, "'Fear not!' And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. At at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. When you compare this half of the story to verses 1 through 7, it's like day and night, you know, Uh, Verses one through seven, it's all mundane, it's about government, a government census and all these details. All this earthly humanity, but here in verse eight, all of a sudden, the heavens are bursting forth and there's angels making announcements and all the stars of the sky are singing and praising and glorifying God. But while the first half of the Christmas story shows us the humanity of Christ, the second half shows us that he was from heaven. Listen again to the angel's announcement. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Uh, at our house, we did, the Chris, we did Christmas stuff yesterday um, with my parents. Because we're headed to Pennsylvania this afternoon and we didn't want to cart all the gifts and stuff with us. Um, So this morning, my son, Teddy, who's three, was a little confused about what was going to be happening because of what happened yesterday morning. So he wakes up and he says to Mindy, can I come out yet? Because we told him yesterday they couldn't come out of their rooms until we told them they could. And then Mindy says, yeah, you can come out. He says, and we open presents. She says, no, we're going to eat breakfast. And then we open presents. No, then we get dressed and go to church. And then we open presents. No, then we go home and eat lunch and then drive to Pennsylvania, and then we open presents. No, then we go to bed, and then we wake up the next morning and open presents. And he said, I don't like that. (laughs) You know, even as adults, we feel that same contagious joy on Christmas morning, don't we? It's all the waiting and the anticipating and the hoping and it's finally coming and you get up and in the living room there's a beautiful tree and all the presents underneath. But what is it this morning that the angels announced that's supposed to elicit such great and exuberant joy? What is it that the shepherds and all the people have been waiting and praying and hoping and anticipating for years and years that when it finally came, there was this explosion of excitement? Verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And I wonder this morning... Whether that feels kind of like a letdown to you. A Savior. Is that really such joyous news? Is that good news to you? Why do I need a Savior? What do I need to be saved from? Well, if you were living in the days of John Huss and the region of Europe where he was from, that would have been a silly question because the people walked around with a constant reminder and awareness of their sin. In fact, if you were to talk to them about God and what is the character trait about God, you know and acknowledge Him most as, it would be this, God means judgment. Because every time I go to church, that's all I hear about When common people thought about God, they saw Him as a judge waiting on His throne to dole out justice for their disobedience. And that's why indulgences were so effective. Here are all these people walking around, waking up, going to bed, feeling guilty, waking up guilty, going to bed guilty, and a guy comes along and says, I will write on an official piece of paper and sign my name to the bottom that says, Your sins are forgiven, and that when you get to the entrance of heaven you have to be allowed in. Can you see how people might be willing to fork over some cash for that kind of a legal document? Wouldn't it be great if we could all have a paper with a signature from the head of the entire church saying you're guaranteed admission into heaven. Your sins are officially forgiven. You just frame that thing and put it on the wall and you're good. But the psalmist tells us, truly no man can ransom another or give God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike, must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. The psalmist is telling us, there's not a single man or woman walking this earth who can offer to ransom your life. There's not a man whose name can sign the bottom line of that forgiven of all sin and it mean a single thing. It doesn't matter whether it's the Pope himself. All men, apart from God, stand condemned under the eternal wrath of God for their sins and disobedience. We have to look for someone or something outside of this earth if we're going to find salvation. The psalmist continues, But God will ransom my soul. There may not be a single man or woman on this earth who could ever ransom me, but God will. He will receive me. This is why Christmas is good news. Because Jesus Christ isn't just like all of those other earthly babies that were born. He was sent here from outside the earth. Christ alone is our heavenly Savior. And that's why it's good news. This is why the angels praise God and sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among whom He is well pleased. It is God's greatest glory that He has sent us a heavenly Savior who is Christ alone. This Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloths found by the shepherds lying in a manger, is God's gift to us. It is the ransom, the purchase, the redemption of our lives, of our souls. If you want a piece of paper that says your sins are forgiven, the Apostle Paul says go to the cross. Go to the cross. Because that's where God has hung the record of your debt. And Jesus Christ with His own blood has stamped across it forgiven. Christ alone is our heavenly Savior. Christ alone is our human King. One last thing to note before we close. Faithful shepherds preach Christ alone. Do you see the shepherds in the story? Their one job is simply to relay the message of what the angels told them. They go and they find Mary and they find Joseph and they find the baby just as it had been told them. And all they do is recount the good news of the gospel. Faithful shepherds, faithful pastors preach Christ alone. They are simply satisfied to join the angels in glorifying and praising God in the person of Jesus Christ. John Huss was such a shepherd. He writes, Christ alone is the head of the church. Christ alone is the chief foundation of the church. This bishop of our souls will not fail us in things necessary to salvation, but will past, pasture, guard, and feed his sheep as a truly good shepherd. See, ultimately, as we heard in the Advent lesson, it was John Huss' insistence on this truth Christ alone got him into hot water with the church. He was excommunicated by one of the three popes, I think maybe even two of the popes excommunicated him, you know, simultaneously. And the Pope actually put the city of Prague where he lived under interdict until they kicked him out of the pulpit. And what that meant was church is basically cancelled. No more services, no more communion, no more burials. See all these dead bodies piling up and not allowed to be buried. So out of care for his flock, he stepped down and began to roam the countryside preaching to the country folk and writing. In 1414, he was summoned to the council of Constance. Uh, and the Pope and the church guaranteed him safe passage, which meant they couldn't kill him. But if you read the fine print. It only said he was guaranteed safe passage on his way there. So he gets there to Constance and they don't give him any chance to defend or explain himself. They simply say you have to recant these things or else. And this is what he said. I appeal to Jesus Christ, the only judge who is almighty and completely just. In his hand I plead my cause. Not on the basis of false witnesses and erring counsels, but on truth and justice. He appealed to Christ alone. So they arrested him. A year later, they took him into the courtyard of the cathedral. And one by one, they stripped all the priestly garments off of him. And they burned him at the stake. It's quite appropriate that we're learning about John Huss on Christmas Eve. Did you know that it's traditional in Europe to have roast goose on Christmas? You've all heard a Christmas carol, right? Well, throughout his life, John Husk loved to make puns on his goofy last name, which was Goose. And he even had a sense of humor as he was going to the stake. This is what he told his executioner You may cook this goose, but in a century a swan will arise whom you can neither roast nor boil. If you know anything about Lutheranism, the Lutherans have this thing about swans. It's because of this prophecy. A hundred years later, 1570, Martin Luther and the 95 Theses. Martin Luther, the swan and the Reformation. When Martin Luther was brought before councils, he openly admitted, I am a hussite. I'm the swan. And here's what the swan had to say about the goose. Truly huss, who in the agony of death invoked Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who suffered for us and for such a cause and with such faith and steadfastness threw himself into the fire, if he did not show himself a noble and brave martyr of Christ, then will scarcely anyone be saved. This Christmas, May we, like the roast goose, all throw ourselves upon Christ alone, our human King, our Heavenly Savior, who is the good news of great joy. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the example of men like John Huss, who do not encourage us to put our faith in them, but simply point us back to Jesus Christ. Just like the shepherds calling us to celebrate the King and the Savior. We thank you for giving us yourself, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.